0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? It's time for the tech news for Thursday, April 21st, 2022. Uh... This is going to be like a down with capitalism episode. And I realize that as an employee of a massive company, that, that, you know, there's some baggage there, but yeah, uh, let's, let's jump into it because uh, I'm, I'm going to be getting on a soapbox. Um, So for those of y'all who hate it when I do that, here's your preemptive warning, but first let's talk about Netflix because one of the big stories yesterday in the tech space, was about how Netflix uh, had its company's quarterly earnings report. And Netflix revealed that it had experienced a net loss of around 200,000 subscribers worldwide. So this is after taking into account all the new subscribers that had joined. There was still a net loss of 200,000. Now, this was the first quarter where Netflix had ever reported a drop in subscribers over the last 10 years. And boy, howdy, did the bottom drop out. Like, it was actually kind of shocking to see the reaction to this news. Shares of Netflix closed at more than 35% down from what it had been trading at. And Netflix's stock had already taken a bit of a beating this year, you know, before yesterday. The drop in share price meant the company lost $50 billion off its market cap. Uh, Market cap is something you can figure out by multiplying the number of existing shares by the going market price for those shares. You multiply those two numbers together, you get the market cap. And I've got a lot to say about that. But first, let's just get to why Netflix saw numbers go down. The company said it was due to a combination of factors. One is that as regions have lifted mandates and more people have become vaccinated, a lot of folks are getting out of the house. And as such, they are canceling service subscriptions because... You know, they were signing up for these things when they were stuck at home and didn't have anything else to do. Now, presumably another factor that contributes to this issue is inflation. Inflation has been a huge problem, particularly here in the United States. And thus people have had to kind of tighten their budgets across their households, right? They couldn't spend as much money. Like when your basic necessities start costing more, you got to make these kind of determinations. And um, so a lot of folks were, looking at entertainment as something where they could cut some corners. Uh, It doesn't help that Netflix has increased subscription fees a couple of times in the not-too-distant past. Uh, In October 2020, the price of premium Netflix membership went up to $17.99 per month. Then last year, it went up again to $19.99 per month. So, you know, it's increased a couple of times in recent memory, and that's another big issue. But another really big factor is obviously competition. You know, Netflix used to only have to really grapple with Hulu and Amazon Prime when it came to streaming video. But these days, you've also got Paramount Plus, you've got Disney Plus, you've got HBO Max, you've got Apple and lots more. So if the average household is like mine, folks end up making decisions on which services they want and which ones they're willing to skip out on. And trust me, I've got plenty of FOMO. Like, I, I don't subscribe to Apple, and I feel like I need to so I can watch Severance and Ted Lasso. I just haven't done it yet. Um, uh, And I used to have Hulu, and I cut that. So lots of households have to make these determinations. And if they say, you know, we haven't watched anything on Netflix in, like, six months, clearly they're going to cut that if they're looking at, you know, we still want to keep, say, Disney Plus or whatever. Now, Netflix has long leaned on its original programming to set it apart, particularly as various studios have chosen to move their own properties onto their own streaming services. So you've had companies say like, well, why would we give Netflix the the power of having our content when we can have our own streaming service and just host it there? We've seen that a lot. And, uh, you know, making original content's really expensive. In fact, Netflix was famously spending billions of dollars making their original series and shows and and films and such. So that's also an issue. And now we also have other entities like Apple that are producing award-winning content. So the competition's really serious in that case. Now, add to all of that the fact that Netflix was hitting a saturation point in some regions like the United States, it really meant that expansion within those regions would become unrealistic. Uh, You know, it's hard to convince more people to buy into it when you've pretty much hit everybody who is interested. There's also the fact that some households share login credentials with friends and family outside of that household. And Netflix estimates there's some 100 million of those out there. So that's 100 million potential accounts that Netflix could, could get signed up on the service that instead are just piggybacking on existing accounts. So what exactly is Netflix planning to do about all this? Well, one thing they're looking to do is to roll out a lower cost ad supported tier of service to attract new subscribers, similar to how services like Hulu use, you know, tiers that have ad support to them. Another potential avenue they're looking at is to crack down on the account sharing issue. Now Netflix has already rolled out a pilot program in some countries in Central and South America that give subscribers an option to sign up for a tier that has up to two additional profiles for folks who do not live within the household itself. So in other words, you spend a little bit more money, but you have these authorized tiers that you can hand out to people. Uh, you know, and, and it's limited to like two. Uh, it's cheaper than if everyone got their own subscription. But it still means that Netflix gets some money. And meanwhile, those additional people can still get access to Netflix, which is better than having it cracked down to the point where anyone outside of a specific, say, IP address is excluded from being able to use that account. Obviously, you get some issues there, too. Like if you travel a lot and you like to use Netflix to keep up with stuff, then you want to make sure that you're not going to run into an issue where Netflix says, hey, I noticed that You know, there's a lot of logins to your account, but they're not all from the same place. And, you know, then the company cracks down on you. You want to work around that, too. So these could be handy solutions, but they're ones that are going to take some time. In fact, Netflix says these measures might take more than a year in order to have a big impact on the business. And that has a lot of investors scrambling. And here's where I'm going to have a bit of an anti-capitalist rant. Um, so I've complained many times about how modern capitalism holds shareholder return and, by extension, company growth over all other metrics. This is something that really got its its start in the early 80s. It wasn't always this way. Uh, And in fact, some of the people who are most responsible for a a renewed focus on shareholder value would later go on to say it's a mistake to hold shareholder value above everything else. Doesn't stop companies from doing it, though. Um, So it's not it's not enough to do a good job if you're a company. In fact, doing a good job at whatever you do ultimately isn't that important at all. What is important is growth. Because growth equals increased value. Increased value means higher share prices of your stock. And that means that the stakeholders, your shareholders, are happy because they're seeing a return on their investment. And since we're usually talking about companies that report quarterly results, those important numbers hit every three months. So they want to, you know, shareholders want to see those numbers going up every report. So ideally, you show growth across every three-month period. And that's the measure of success for a company. If the company happens to stay true to its organizational mission, and if it happens to perform at the top of its game, you know, that's nice, too. It's just not required. And so for a company like Netflix when it has a setback, you end up seeing a lot of people jumping ship. And that's because those people, their their focus is on quarter over quarter gains. If those numbers go the wrong way, people start to bail. Now, on top of that, this focus on short term gains makes it very challenging for companies to make good plans for the long term. It's not impossible. There are companies that do it. But it is much harder because in the meantime, you really have to keep the shareholders happy on that quarter by quarter basis. If the shareholders aren't happy, they bounce. And now it becomes way harder for you to achieve those long-term goals because if those stock prices start going down because people have lost confidence, you're not going to have the the financial ability to execute the long-term plans you have in mind. And if enough folks bounce, it can actually send a company into a spiral that's really hard to pull out of. And when we pull ourselves away from the stock market side of business and we just look at how this affects the companies and their customers, we just see tons of problems. Then there's also the issue that there's a limit to growth. Uh, It's very hard to grow once you hit saturation points. And we see this in all sorts of companies. Netflix hit in the United States because pretty much everyone who wanted Netflix and who could afford it subscribed. So there were no more worlds to conquer. Alexander wept. And we've also seen it in other companies like you know, Facebook, you know, Meta slash Facebook, but specifically Facebook, because Facebook expanded to a truly gargantuan user base, but now it's seeing those numbers on the decline. It's not able to attract new users. And a lot of older users have either slipped off the system or otherwise, you know, are unable to be users. Like maybe they passed away or something. So we see this in other companies like Facebook, or, you know, meta, but specifically the Facebook platform, you know, Facebook expanded to a truly gargantuan user base, but now the company is seeing numbers on the decline for the Facebook platform. It's having trouble uh, attracting younger users. And meanwhile, older users are kind of slipping off the platform. So it, it hit a saturation point and it's having a real hard time growing and that, because that's such an important metric in a company's uh, you know, health, uh, at least as according to shareholders, it's really put Meta in kind of a, a rough spot. We also have seen this with cable networks, where a cable network, let, let's say it's a company that has several channels, you know, once they get on a certain number of services, they really can't expand anymore. You're essentially in as many households as you possibly can be within that region. So the only way to grow is to expand to other regions, to focus on international growth. And, um, you know, I saw that when when I worked for How Stuff Works and How Stuff Works was part of Discovery Communications. That was a big part of Discovery's strategy. Now we see Discovery strategy also being on expanding through online services, you know, with the merger with the former Warner media. so eventually you do hit a cap and you just stop growing you just can't grow any bigger it is unsustainable to continue to grow and then what happens? you know it's it's very hard for me not to look at this entire thing as a very long-term pump and dump scheme the idea that you're just pumping up a company a company up so that it can grow bigger and bigger until it just can't grow anymore and then you get the heck out. And in the meantime, you just, you know, this company that might have been doing something really good and important is suddenly at in a a trouble spot because of that. Um, Anyway, I'm done ranting about modern capitalism for now anyway. And obviously, this is an oversimplification of the issue. There are lots of companies out there that do not fall into this trap. It's just this is a trap I see way too many companies fall into. And in many cases, they are companies that I actually really kind of like, or at least I like the services or products that they produce. So it's frustrating as a consumer to see that the focus goes toward the shareholders. Uh, And it, it would require a seismic shift in business philosophy for this to change. So I don't expect it to happen anytime soon. All right, When we come back, we'll be talking about a lot of other tech news uh, and some business stuff because the two are very tightly intertwined. But first, let's take some time for our own business and listen to a couple of messages from sponsors. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in today for free trial eligibility. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. How about we talk about some big wins for companies that are connected to Elon Musk? You know, I make no secret that I'm not a big Musk fan, but there's no denying that a couple of his companies have really performed incredibly well recently. First up is Tesla, which reported an $18.7 billion in revenue for the first quarter of 2022, and $3.3 billion of that was profit. That is incredible. Now, part of the revenue came from Tesla's practice of selling emissions credits to other automakers. Uh, See, certain governments like the EU and the United States require automakers to manufacture a certain percentage of clean vehicles in all the cars that they manufacture. Not every automaker actually manages to hit those regulations. So to balance it out, these automakers are allowed to buy emissions credits from other companies that do hit those requirements. So the idea here is that the automakers have an incentive to develop and produce cleaner technology because if they don't, they have to pay money in order to buy credits to offset their dirty, dirty cars. And so Tesla's allowed to sell emissions credits to these automakers because Tesla makes electric vehicles. Their vehicles don't have emissions. Anyway, Tesla sold nearly $680 million worth of emissions credits in the first quarter of 2022. That's more than twice what Tesla sold during the fourth quarter of 2021. So, you know, a good amount of money is coming in from these emissions credits sales, obviously not. A significant amount when you look at 18.7 billion dollars of revenue. But in years past, uh, it was those emissions credits that really helped Tesla when it was making these earnings calls because they weren't making as much money off actual vehicle sales. But that is a different story right now, anyway. Anyway, the company has a lot of other battles to fight, including navigating the ongoing supply chain challenges. But so far, Tesla has performed better in that regard than a lot of other companies have. So Tesla has shown a lot more flexibility than a lot of other automakers have managed and thus has really flourished quite a bit in the first quarter of 2022. One other thing that Musk talked about during that earnings call was that Tesla is working on creating a robo-taxi vehicle that won't have pedals or a steering wheel, and that the company is targeting a 2024 date for rollout. Now, I think that is incredibly ambitious. Uh, We all know that the Tesla full self-driving mode isn't actually a full self-driving mode. And that our current level of autonomous car technology has us probably somewhere around level three. There are five levels total, or six if you count zero, which is no autonomous system at all. Uh, and level three is conditional automation. That means that current autonomous vehicles really still need human oversight. They're only capable of autonomous operation In specific situations, such as within a a narrowly defined region of operation, like, you know, within these, you know, 12 blocks or something like that, Uh, or under specific circumstances, like specific weather conditions, like it has to be bright and sunny, or it can't be, you know, raining, or it has to be a specific time of day, like it can't be after dusk. These are the sort of conditions that most autonomous cars have to operate under. It's some form of restrictive automation. Uh, For a driverless robo-taxi that has no means of human override to be a possibility, we would need to achieve level five autonomy because even level four autonomy typically includes the option for humans to override the system and take control. Obviously, that would be impossible if there are no controls to take. Of course, the fact that this is a goal doesn't mean that Tesla will actually hit it, uh, nor does it mean that whatever Tesla does produce, let's say it does produce a, a vehicle with no you know, steering wheel, no pedals, doesn't necessarily mean that that vehicle will actually qualify as a true level five autonomous vehicle. So in that second possibility, I would really caution anyone against getting into such a vehicle because it could potentially be really dangerous. We've already seen several instances in which driver-assist features in Tesla vehicles have contributed to fatal accidents. Now, in several of those cases, you could argue that that was due to human drivers disregarding safety rules. But still, this is a pretty big swing that Tesla is taking. And it's been a while since I talked about The Boring Company. That is Elon Musk's business that's all about digging massive tunnels for the purposes of high-speed transportation, as well as some other stuff. But the high-speed transportation is typically what we really focus on. The Boring Company held a round of funding that brought in $675 million in investments, which brought the company's value up to $5.675 billion. Uh, This is another company... With which I have some concerns, mainly because the goals and claims of the company seem to be largely unsubstantiated by reality. However, let's talk about what the company's mission is before I get all skeptical. Uh, So for the transportation side of the boring company's business, the goal is to dig out tunnel networks that will allow for the construction of transportation infrastructure. That infrastructure will ideally create an alternative to street-level traffic and help reduce or potentially even eliminate congestion, making it easier for you to get to your destination and create a more pleasant experience for, you know, the surface dwellers. And when coupled with Loop, which is the transportation infrastructure part, the idea is that passengers will zip around these tunnels at potentially up to 150 miles per hour, Uh, Now, this in itself was a step down from the original concept of the Hyperloop, which was an enclosed train system that would pump out most of the air from the tunnels in order to reduce air resistance and be able to travel at very high speeds. The current loop proposal involves riding in Tesla vehicles through tunnels. Uh, Now, a standard Tesla can hold five people, although the versions that we've seen have maxed out at three passengers plus a human driver. And obviously, if you wanted to go all the way to five people where you have one human driver and four passengers, you have to have folks who don't mind being super cozy in the back seat. Uh, Also, so far, people have only been in vehicles that have reached a maximum of 50 miles per hour. And last I checked, the LVCC loop, that is the Las Vegas Convention Center loop, where there's kind of a pilot program of this, that one is restricted to a maximum of 35 miles per hour. This has led a lot of critics to suggest that all Elon Musk is really doing is just adding more lanes of roads. It's just that these are lanes that are underground uh, and thus isn't really that revolutionary, nor is it expected to make that big of an impact on issues like traffic congestion. Now, arguably, we won't know for sure until something more robust than the Las Vegas Convention Center system is in place in order for us to evaluate it. My guess is that we aren't going to see a massive improvement using this kind of system and that maybe it would have been a better idea to use a more tried and true measure like building out a train system instead, which has a higher capacity and has a long history of being proven to work. But we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, I would love to be proven wrong about this. I would love to see that this is really an effective means of getting people around using electric vehicles. I think that would be amazing for Las Vegas and for other cities that follow suit. Now, getting back to self-driving cars for a second. uh, In fact, part of the plan for the loop is to use self-driving Tesla vehicles in the future. It's just that's not how it's working right now. But in the UK, The Department for Transport has determined that in the event of an autonomous car getting into an accident, the motorists inside the car will not be held liable for claims. Instead, the insurance company representing the motorist or that vehicle will be held liable. Moreover, the department says that riders will be allowed to watch videos. They can watch TV on built-in screens in self-driving cars, and there won't be any problem with that. However, it will still be against the law to use a mobile phone. and. Uh, okay. I'm not really sure why one activity is okay and the other one isn't. Also, I think it's going to be a while before we have vehicles that are really dependable enough where this sort of measure will even be relevant. However, assuming we do get to that level of reliable autonomy, the benefits would be tremendous from relieving traffic congestion to reducing the number of accidents and thus injuries and fatalities. So I'm really hoping that we hit it uh, soon. I I remain a little cautious about it because it's just taking a lot more time because as we've, as we've discovered, the challenges are more subtle and varied than what a lot of people previous, including myself previously considered. Uh, I was really gung ho on driverless cars for a really long time. And I still am for the concept. uh, I'm just a little more cautious about the actual capabilities. I mentioned on Tuesday's episode that employees at the flagship Apple store in New York City are in the process of organizing a union, and it turns out that employees at an Apple store in my home city of Atlanta have beat them to the punch. Uh, The Atlanta employees filed a petition yesterday to hold a union election, so this means that the Atlanta employees already secured enough employee support to merit a vote on the subject, And should this upcoming vote pass, then these employees will be the first Apple store workers to unionize. Of course, there will be more steps to take after even a successful vote, including seeing if Apple will recognize the union should the majority of store employees vote in favor of unionizing. Um, If Apple refuses to recognize the union, then the National Labor Relations Board has to get involved and things will go from there. But we'll have to wait and see because the vote hasn't even been held yet. Now, at the same time, some former Nintendo employees have filed a labor complaint against Nintendo alleging that the company terminated their employment after they attempted to organize their coworkers. Furthermore, they claim that Nintendo either used surveillance or implied that they were using surveillance to spy on employee union activities. Now, the next step is that, again, the U.S. National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, will have to investigate these claims to determine if Nintendo actually did engage in illegal labor violations. So it remains to be seen. But yeah, another example, at least allegedly, of a company cracking down on on, uh, employees' attempts to organize. The union-busting activities are something we're hearing more and more of, but then we're also hearing more and more about uh, workers trying to organize. So the labor revolution continues. I'm not the only person screaming at capitalism. In other news, over in the European Union, representatives have advanced proposals that will require all smartphone manufacturers to support the USB-C standard for chargers. So that would mean that all smartphones would have to have USB-C ports and be compatible with USB-C charging cables. Now, one reason for this is to really cut back on e-waste. So the idea here is that you would really only need to buy one charger for your phone, or maybe a couple if you have to have one in a different location or whatever, but you get my, my meaning. You would just have to have the one. Then you could just keep using the same charger even when you change out the type of phone you use. So if you swap from Android to iPhone you don't need a you know new accessories because the the charging cable will fit both if this legislation were to pass and apple were to comply so Yeah, it would mean that Apple would have to manufacture phones with USB-C ports rather than proprietary connectors. Apple has consistently argued that standardizing charging ports would inhibit innovation and that this would ultimately hurt customers in the long run. I think most regulators don't buy that argument. They just suspect that Apple would really like to hang on to proprietary connectors because it creates a market for proprietary accessories, which Apple can provide. This proposal has been a long time in the making, and it still has to go through a couple more rounds of votes for different committees before it gets put to a vote across the EU. And then there has to be time to actually implement the regulations. So there's still time for Apple to make a case for its approach. And even if this legislation does pass, it'll be a little bit before we see it filter into things like Apple's actual design. Okay, we've got a few more stories to cover before we conclude this episode. But first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, Okay. Uh, In Afghanistan, the Taliban have ordered that both the video social platform TikTok and the multiplayer shooter game Player Unknown's Battlegrounds will be banned in the country. They argue that both properties are a bad influence on Afghani youth. Uh, This follows a string of crackdowns on entertainment in the country. Currently, television in Afghanistan mainly broadcasts news or religious programming, and pretty much nothing else. Based on the news stories I've read, it sounds like living under the rule of the Taliban is pretty miserable, particularly for women, which, you know, no big surprise there. Even though the Taliban promised that it wasn't going to return to its more hardline approach to governing, uh, that seems to have gone to the side now. And Yeah, they've really cracked down on the sorts of media that people within the country can access. And my guess is that's just going to get more and more restrictive as time goes on. YouTube has removed the campaign channel for John Lee, who is running unopposed to lead Hong Kong. Uh, That election is going to be determined by a committee of around 1,500 people that committee is nearly entirely made up of pro-beijing officials so it's really it's hard to look at this as anything other than just a performance from china backed officials to show like a the appearance of a democratic process but you know again john lee is running unopposed there's it, it almost you know, it really does raise the question, why do you need a campaign channel? You're not campaigning against anyone. But the U.S. has uh, also ordered sanctions against John Lee and several other Hong Kong officials. And those sanctions are there because those officials have been linked to restricting Hong Kong's autonomy and eliminating individual freedoms of the citizens of Hong Kong, and restricting rights over the last several months. So YouTube has complied with those sanctions and thus shut down that campaign channel. Meta, meanwhile, is going to allow John Lee to maintain a presence on Facebook. However, Meta has deactivated monetization on that account and says that they're not going to allow John Lee's account to make use of payment services in order to comply with the sanctions against John Lee. Net neutrality advocates in California are celebrating a legal victory now that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has rejected a move from ISPs to block California's enforcement of its own net neutrality law. All right, this requires a bit of explanation. So prior to 2018, the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC in the United States, had established certain net neutrality protections that restricted what ISPs could do. And it required ISPs to comply with certain rules, Uh, rules that ISPs are not super keen on complying with. But during the Trump administration, the FCC pretty much gutted all those measures and reversed all of those decisions. California, their, their state representatives stepped up and created legislation that allowed the state of California to enforce similar rules as to what the FCC had in place before 2018. And ISPs really complained about it. They said that the FCC's decision to drop net neutrality should apply across to the state level, because the FCC is federal, and California obviously is a state. Now, the Ninth Circuit said, uh, no. Just because a federal agency abdicates authority over a matter doesn't mean that a state authority can't then step in. Uh, In fact, if a federal agency says, you know, we don't have the authority to regulate this industry, then by extension, that agency also doesn't have the authority to prevent anyone else from regulating it because you can't say I'm not responsible for that and at the same time say you can't be responsible for that (laughs) because you're not the boss. You can't do that. So now California has a strong net neutrality law and moreover will be allowed to maintain that law even if we should see more big swings with the FCC. Like if the FCC were to reinstate net neutrality regulations and then at the change of another administration reverse that decision again, California's law would still stay firm because it's a state law, not a federal law. Uh, So this was a big win for net neutrality advocates. Finally, Do you work for a company that has been urging you to come back to the office? And more importantly, does your boss follow the same rules that you're expected to follow? I ask because a research consortium called Future Forum found that non-executive employees are almost twice as likely to work at the office five days a week as executives are. Uh, The survey found that just over one third of all those who were surveyed have returned to the office full-time. Meanwhile, executives tend to pursue a more hybrid approach to work. Uh, Some of this might be due to business travel, which is definitely on the rise, but some of it seems to highlight a massive divide between employees and executives, that there is kind of a do-as-I-say-and-not-as-I-do philosophy at play here, which is obviously inherently unfair. Now, I have to say I am incredibly fortunate in that I work for a company where we maintain a great deal of flexibility. Uh, In fact, I was in the office earlier this week because I needed to go in, and the only other person in that office that day was my super producer, Tari. We were the only two people there. But we are seeing an increasing number of companies push for employees to return to offices full time. It's just a shame that the same doesn't seem to apply to the bosses. Huh. So, yeah, uh, I guess in the end, uh, what I'm advocating for is down with capitalism and eat the rich. Hey, uh, more seriously, though, like I, I as I get older, I get grouchier about the inherent unfairness in these systems and feel that the labor movement is is kind of a proof that a lot of other people feel the same way I do and that hopefully the labor movement will result in things changing direction. I'm not expecting to see a 180 here. I'm not, and I I don't think that any uh, massive changes aren't going to have other consequences that we'll have to deal with. But it would be nice to kind of see the narrative change a little bit in my mind. Um, and I say that as an executive producer. All right, that's it for this episode of Tech Stuff. And uh, yeah, I keep on hoping that I can cover tech news that doesn't involve as much politics and business as well. I hear you. I I also wish for that, but I got to cover the news that happens. So that's where we are. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in tech stuff, whether it's a tech company, a specific technology, uh, a person in tech, anything like that, or even just a concept in technology you would like to know more about, reach out, let me know. The best way to do that right now is on Twitter the handle for the show is HSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening Zumo Play.